Lord Natway, welcome to this AHC podcast. It's great to have you with us. Can you tell us, first of all, a little bit of your background and how you came to be a member of the House of Lords? Yes, well, politics was never something I intended to get involved in. But I had started out in business at McKinsey and was very interested in entrepreneurship and then just had a transition myself. My employer allowed me to go off into the wider world and either get an MBA and come back. In fact, either to stay and continue to work there uh, without an MBA or go and do anything I liked and come back with or without an MBA. So kind of get out jail free card. So that allowed me in my transition as a, as a young adult. Uh, graduates to go out and explore the world of social enterprise, which I did and helped to, as a result, set up Teach First uh, with others. And then later on, a whole variety, a whole portfolio of different initiatives uh, loosely based around the idea of social reform, including with David Cameron helping to develop the concept and pilot to a charity, the National Citizenship Service Program, which then meant that in 2009, on the back of that and Teach First and other things, he invited me to join the House of Lords, uh, where I've been since um, 2010. Very exciting. That has been life-changing, I would imagine. Yeah, and certainly because I've been brought into an environment where, when I started, many of the peers were twice my age. Um, I've always actually, because of where I am in my generation, other kids around me were a bit younger. My parents had me early. I've always actually been in environments where there are other people who are more advanced and experienced in me, which has been great. I've just learned a lot from that, and I'm, I'm doing so you know, very much in this environment in the House of Lords as well. Where does that motivation come from? Where does that engagement in social transformation come from? Well, I suppose for me, you know, if you go right back, my father's a pastor. He helped to establish lots of Chinese congregations in the UK as Chinese migrants came here to live, work, study. And so I remember a lot of my childhood was hanging around some of his friends, British missionaries who'd been in China in the early 20th century. Um, amazing kind of people who had seen all kinds of things and been in prison and so on. So some of it comes from there. And then just having an environment that's motivated and was prepared to take a risk on, you know, the kinds of things that I could be allowed to do. And then I think just the timing of the explosion of social reform, where our society is and the need for more of it, just as the Victorians engaged in it to help alleviate some of the challenges in their day around environment, around urbanization. And so I've very much been inspired by people like Lord Shaftesbury, who was here in this house the seventh Earl, who did, did a huge amount in all kinds of areas to do with child labor, to do with uh, asylums, a whole host of areas. And I can see the real need for that today as well. Moving into the retirement industry and the pension space and your interest in that and involvement in that, you mentioned a little earlier the National Citizen Service and your work, as it were, at the youth end of life. At the other end of the spectrum, transition into retirement for people. You've written a paper back in 2012 that was entitled Life Transitions and Retirement in the 21st Century. That was talking about the whole of life uh, and all of the transitions, but then putting a focus on retirement. We'll come on to the specifics of that in a minute, but where is your interest in the retirement industry come from? Yeah, well, you know, if you go back to the Victorians, if you go back to the, even the establishment of the welfare state, these shifts in thinking can take decades. I'm pretty certain the welfare state, when it was first mooted as an idea several decades before Attlee and the post-war kind of introduction of, of that system, it took a while for people to, to even get their head around these, these ideas. And I think we're in a similar shift right now where many of the ways we thought about later life or social issues generally has been built on the back of, well, if you're going to change things, you need legislation, you need money, preferably from the government, and you need to you know, build something like a hospital or a school or, or a new system. But actually, you know, we, we're now in a different era. A lot of what is needed isn't necessarily new things or money or laws. These are important, but changes in behavior. A lot of the social ills we face aren't just pure hunger, although there's a, still some of it around, or the total absence of housing. It's actually human behaviors that mean the incentives 
and the nudges that are around us can sometimes cause us to make decisions that aren't the best ones. For example, if you suffer from obesity or certain chronic illnesses, it's you know sometimes because it's too easy, get greater pleasure out of, of doing things that might not be in, in your long-term interest, you know, help your longevity. So when you look at things like retirement and later life, we then have to understand, well, maybe the solution isn't always a new law or a tax incentive or a new system or more money, important as these things can be. But as I wrote about in the report, maybe what we're missing is a systemic understanding of why people make the decisions that they make and what's changing in the environment around them. That means they may not always be making decisions that are best for them. So in the report, we talked about the fact that, you know, in policy, we miss out because departments are structured by silo. But a lot of the problems we face in life are to do with the transitions that often sit between two or more departments. So for example, when you leave primary school and go to secondary school, you get a lot of challenges. You start your first job, uh, have your first child or your second child. And of course, later life is one of those huge transitions. In the report, we talked about how this together with the kind of youth transitions, early coming of age transitions, the transition to later life is, is one of the biggest that pretty much everyone faces. Whereas say leaving prison might only affect, you know, 10, 20, 30,000 people a year. Later life transitions is affecting millions of people simultaneously. And it's not just one transition, i.e. leaving your final job and being retired. It's lots of different ones. And in some cases, it's not a full transition. And we, I think, in, in government, in, in parliament, in policy terms, haven't been able to think holistically about how to support that and encourage the kind of positive behaviours that will help people have a, a better uh, later life where their well-being is increased and optimised. What I found very interesting in reading the report, and I would really recommend it to those of you listening, and we can make this available with this podcast for you, but it was interesting how you were able to categorize certain foreseen life transitions. So there's the ones that we would all hopefully enjoy, perhaps starting a relationship, buying our house if we're able to, leaving home and moving into a job for the first time. Things that can happen that are transitions which you can foresee, but then the ones that create often a lot of stress are the ones that are unforeseen and happen quite quickly. So bereavement, death in the family or divorce, or a relationship breakdown, or being made redundant, or being a victim of a crime. In your opinion then, in terms of somebody moving towards retirement, what would be the stresses and strains on somebody in moving towards that? Because at first sight you could think, well, that's something that they know is coming up, they're planning for it, it should be foreseen. Yeah, I think one of the biggest challenges is how do we help change behavior for those who may retire or partially retire? such that it's a more managed process. We, in our research, came across certain job categories, for example, the police uh, head teachers, where life expectancy fell, even with a planned retirement, you know, age 65 or 70, increasingly it's being pushed back. And of course, what people don't always foresee is illness and chronic illness and conditions that mean that they might have to give up their job or reduce the number of days or hours they work. And what you see is that in some of these roles, people's identities are tied up with their job. So if you run a school or if you're a policeman, you know, we had reports of uh, policemen and women, but particularly the men I think suffered, who were told on the final day, give up your badge, all of your equipment, you're no longer a policeman or woman. And suddenly, you know, they've not had any preparation. It's just a, a sudden shock, even though it was planned. And what you find is in some cases within a year or two or three people died. And so the things that they had hoped or people might have dreamt that they would do in retirement, they never get around to doing because actually work has been everything. One of the proposals we made and we ran some sort of pilots to test out some of the ideas was how can you build networks and not just think about your financial 
later life and the decisions that you need to make to plan in that arena. But all the other areas are tranquil. Sometimes people worry about more, you know, who your friends are going to be, what you're going to do with your time, how you can find meaning through not just work, but through voluntary activity and through social activity. These are the things we felt that, you know, five, 10 years before someone was about to formally retire would enable people to get into the right mindset and have the right support in order to smooth that transition. Then one of the pilots we did was, you know, working with large employers to take people nearing retirement to say hotels or other venues out of their workplace and get them into circles to start to engage with each other on the kind of life that they might wish to have, the dreams that they've put off, the skills they'd love to learn, the things they'd love to do and to broaden people's horizons and, and create a safe, supportive environment to have kind of those kind of what can be sometimes scary conversations. The benefits we saw in those pilots was, was significant, you know, based on the kind of feedback and research uh, that we gained. In fact, some of the employers reported that there were entire new business ideas. Jaguar Land Rover, one of the pilot companies through this charity called uh, Envisage that was set up to try out these trials, actually looked at, you know, how you could create a business for classic cars, bring back some of the retired workers who knew how to fix an old, you know, Land Rover as a new kind of business that tapped into the wealth of experience and ideas that some of the retirees or semi-retirees had so they could stay active, but also, you know, make something of a living after formal retirement. I think that there's so much more we can do. Now, that's with large employers. What happens if you come from a lower income background or, you know, for whatever reason, there is no other source of funding or organization. So there's a route, you know, with government support and money and with, you know, financial providers and pension providers to explore how can we find ways to collectively resource something that would benefit all people, not just those who are employees of large firms. And what part do you think the pensions industry itself should play in all of this? Well, I, I think it's exciting to see what AHC has been doing with pension providers to engage their pension holders, both in terms of envisioning and planning their uh, future financial situation. But also I see such potential to go beyond that, just as Jaguar Land Rover did, to understand what skills and capabilities that some of these pension holders have? Could they be harnessed to positively benefit society and or even the original businesses and industries that they came out of? Because they've still got such experience and knowledge. At the same time, the world is changing, as we know, in terms of environment, in terms of the, the challenges at a local level. There's so much we can do, I think, to understand from those who hold pensions what kinds of areas they'd be excited, even if it's a small percentage to see their pensions investing in, particularly around young people around the kind of world um, young people are, are going to uh, enter. And then for some of those employers and pension funds that are really into wellness, I think there is something that can be done with different providers to scaffold a journey for people into later life. That means that they are better prepared and which means we don't have to pay the costs collectively as a society, as an industry, as individuals of you know, having to make last minute decisions with too many choices and too many options um, in a knee-jerk fashion. I know that Guy Opperman, the Minister for Pensions and Financial Inclusion, gave a speech about progress that he felt was being made with the offer of a midlife MOT, as he called it, for people who are working in their 50s. I suppose from a health perspective, you know, we now are familiar with routine screenings on the financials. Is that something you can see real benefit in? I would only caution that sometimes these things can be done, you know, at scale in a very narrow way. So you might have, you know, however long, 15 minutes, an hour, whatever, with a financial advisor who can only say so much. As you know, from health and chronic health, you know, the best support that often people find is from support groups to do with diabetes or, or cancer or just obesity or whatever it is. And I think we now need to see that happen in the financial arena. And it needs to go beyond just pure financial content 
into other things that people need to start thinking about for the rest of their life because ultimately the time that they're going to have is going to be the most precious commodity the financial component enables them to use their time in different ways but if you don't have a clear idea of how you want to use your time as you start to portfolio your career towards the later end of your life and then you know when you fully come out of the world of work that's the thing i think we need to help people to to better think about plan and understand with other people around them and in terms of that responsibility for pension managers pension providers what's your view on where the limits of responsibility lie for pension providers i mean obviously there's a big focus on esg at the moment which has been about often avoiding investing in things that could be damaging to people planet and, and, and so on i think where we're now wanting to go is how can we solve some of the global challenges that we face in the world take for example plastics in the ocean or energy security or better healthcare i think there are plenty of opportunities to actually make good money over a long time investing in you know startups or bigger businesses that could generate huge returns imagine the company that say wins the coca-cola contract for a fully biodegradable plastic bottle that's a huge contract but that kind of company will need a lot of investment to scale up its production and r&d to to win those kinds of contracts and i think this is the kind of opportunity that pension funds if they are able to partner with those that can source these kinds of projects then i think we can actually start to create a better world in the future that gives sustainable returns for you know investors pension fund holders which will make pension holders much happier certainly knowing that their children will live in a world that will be more secure uh, and more balanced but i think we need to move away a little bit from either do no harm which is great continue to do no harm but to go beyond that and say you know let's not just do small things that don't scale but do good but let's do good while doing well and making good returns for investors as well. In terms of your own personal involvement in this arena and the role the unique role you have as a as a peer of the realm in the House of Lords and the connections that gives you and the ability to lobby and push forward on agendas how do you see your role in this sphere in impacting the retirement space? I'm always been interested in starting things up and in a sense my role is to be almost like a venture capitalist but with a with a social reform mandate you know to me reform is very much like creating antiviruses so you create a little pilot you test out ideas in a safe you know separated out context you scale those ideas just as teach first in 3 years became a national charity uh, and is now in over 40 countries and it grew very very rapidly with the right partners and at some point the system itself turns around and goes wow what you're doing is so good or is making such a difference we want to absorb a lot of that or or partner with that to then help us change things that we're finding too difficult to change from within the system if you like and, and just as our dna is comprised of lots of viruses that infected us and the body went wow you're so good at doing this i'm going to absorb you literally into our dna and that's how it historically happened hospitals schools these were inventions from outside of government from outside large institutions that scaled up with the support of all kinds of stakeholders to such an extent that then government and big institutions said okay we can absorb you into our system because you're doing good you're doing it sustainably and we want to have your dna in our dna well lord way it's been fascinating talking to you thank you so much for your thoughts to challenge our thinking thank you for your time thank you my pleasure